Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're revisiting a subject that I know resonated with many of you. We're dealing with the subject of personality and just how important it is. Chris Cernicade joined me on a previous episode of the show, and I know a lot of folks were engaged because he offered a simple quiz that allowed you to have some insights into your personality type. I know a single quiz is not the be-all and end-all, and Chris is back to help us gain some more insights into personality and to give you another quiz. Chris, it's great to have you with us again. It's an absolute pleasure and honor to be here, Dr. DeRose. Chris, for those who didn't catch our previous interview, tell us why, from your perspective, personality and understanding it is just so vital. That's an excellent question, Dr. DeRose. The personality tests, they're useful because they provide us with a vocabulary for personality. Having this categorical terminology, it can help you and your loved ones express your thoughts in a coherent fashion so each of you can better communicate your needs and your wants with each other. In fact, there's a beautiful quote from a professor from the University of Toronto. His name is Dr. Peterson. He summarized the important need for having these kinds of personality test types. He said, you have to deal with yourself and you have to deal with other people and everybody is a personality. And so the more you understand yourself and the more you understand other people, hypothetically, the better off you're going to be in the world, the better your plans are going to be and the more likely they'll come to fruition. And I'd also like to say the less frustration and disappointment you're likely to experience. So as you can see, if we want less frustration and if we want less difficulty and disappointment in our lives and a better relationship in others and a more objective view of ourselves, we should use these different insights from the personality type tests. I think this is so profound because... Chris, I don't know how many times I've heard people say to me, wow, if I just understood this person better, or I don't know why my boss does this, or why my partner does this, or, you know, what's going on with this other kid in the school? It just seems that if we understood a little bit better what made people tick, we could get along with them better. Is that really what we're talking about, at least on one level? I think that that's an accurate representation of the purpose of these results. What I've often found is that sometimes people will have an extreme view or an extreme attachment to these kinds of tests. That's not what the creators of these tests intended for them to be, and that's not how you should practically use them. You see, once you get the result, your goal shouldn't be to obsess over the result you got. Hmm. Because typically, especially with the one we're going to take today, you'll see that each personality type has a subset of strengths and a subset of weaknesses. And so when you get this, you have now an objective way to look at yourself 
take stock of yourself, if you will. And so now you can see, well, there are some areas where I can capitalize on my strengths, Mm -hmm. but then there are other areas in my life where there are weaknesses and I can work towards maturing those areas. That way I can have a better relationship with others and have an increased self-respect. Perfect. Perfect. So Chris, what kind of construct are we going to look at today that can help us understand our personality better? In the last interview that we did together, we covered what was called the Big Five Personality Quiz. Mm -hmm. So today, we're going to move on to the 16 Personality Examination. It's also known as the Myers-Briggs. That's what its founders were named. Or sometimes it's called MBTI. So it's basically a test that is measuring your preferential traits of personality along the lines of personalized habits. So today we're going to get to look at its Jungian origins, how it came to be known as the Myers-Briggs, and we're going to take the 16 personalities test truncated version. Okay, so you mentioned the name of Carl Jung or Carl Jung, depending on what uh, you know place in the world people come from. Tell us uh, why his name often comes up in these discussions. Carl Jung is actually an interesting figure. The first book of his that I read was called The Art of Psychotherapy, and it was deeply influential in my own thoughts. He was a Swiss psychiatrist, psychotherapist, and psychologist. And that's not a tongue twister. It's the truth. Okay. Now, the 16 personalities examination, it finds its roots in his ideas and his theories He has another book. It's called Psychological Types. And concerning psychological type, I'm going to quote from Jung. He said, what appears to be random behavior is actually the result of differences in the way people prefer to use their mental capacities. Hmm. So interestingly enough, Carl Jung also made contributions to the field of etymology besides psychology. Uh, For those who don't know, etymology, it's the study of word origin. Actually, the terms extrovert and introvert were both coined by Carl Jung. And we're going to get to look into what those two terms mean in a little later during this interview. Well, you've definitely got my interest, and I think a lot of my listeners, I mean, these terms are are bantered about, uh, you know, often. And, you know, extrovert, introvert, and I've heard different people bring different definitions to the table. So I'm definitely interested in your take on these uh, on these terms. But I'm interested also, just like you've been sharing with us, to try to gain some more insights into my own personality and to the personality of others. And I am definitely looking forward to the quiz. I know, I, I know without a shadow of a doubt, my wife is also looking forward to it. She is one of the people that does post-production work for us. She actually did the work on your first show. And she said to me, when she heard that I was going to have you on again, she said, well, you have to let me do the post-production work on that show because I want to hear what he had to say. And especially if there's going to be another quiz, it would have been non-negotiable. So, Chris, where do we go from here in understanding all of this better and drawing some of these practical conclusions? I think it would be good to look at whether or not the test we're going to take today is actually even accurate. 
you know, sometimes people are concerned because there is a lot of pseudoscience or pop psychology that people hear of. And so you'll look at, say, a BuzzFeed quiz and you'll get to see what type of cheese you are. And you might be mozzarella. I might be Swiss. But those are more tests that you would take for fun or when you're just wanting to enjoy an afternoon doing something at home. Mm -hmm. But the Big Five was based in part off of neuroscientific work. Now, the 16 personalities test, is it accurate? I would say that it is a valid indicator of preferential personality and mental function. Hmm. You see, sometimes people will say, well, I took the 16 personality test twice and I got a different result the next time. Okay. But usually, as you'll see when we take the test, there is four and four and there's two different dichotomies and so there's eight and they get multiplied to a factor of 16. Hmm. So you have E and I, N and S, F and T and J and P. And we'll find out what all these letters mean. Usually when people take the test again and get a different type, they've switched on one of the dichotomous pairs because the dichotomy in that preference was very, very low. So it's not as if this test is giving wildly different results each time. The baseline consistency of it is very accurate. So I'm assuming from what you already said, the E and the I are the extrovert and introvert. Is that a safe conclusion to draw? That's exactly right. The E is extrovert and the I is introvert. Those terms are actually interesting. As mentioned, they were coined by Jung. What he did is he took a German word, extra, and he combined it with a Latin word, verita, and he put them together. Uh, extra means outside, and verita is the Latin word that means to turn. So the extrovert turns to the outside world. Introvert, uh, Jung, he looked at that as the dichotomous spectrum, where the introvert meaning turning into from the outside world. So the outside looking in, extrovert inside looking out. It's pretty interesting not only did he contribute to personality psychology, but I've always found it neat that that etymology actually goes back to his initial research. That is interesting. So a lot of times when I hear people trying to decide who's an extrovert, who's an introvert, you know, there's all these simple ways to, to sort this out, quote, unquote, simple. Sometimes people say, oh, it's what energizes you. If if when you're alone, you're energized, that's an introvert. If you're energized by by people, then you're an extrovert. I've heard other characterizations. Is there a simple way to come up with a definition of what an extrovert is like, what an introvert is like? I think it's actually good when you look at all of the different personality spectrums. So all four E and I, N and S, T and F, and then J and P. If you look at all of them, what you'll find is that the way you end up getting that letter is by a process called factor analysis. So we mentioned this last time in our interview about the Big Five, but these personality types, or at least the ones from this test, they're not based on stereotypes. So, oh, that person loves speaking in front of a crowd. They must be an extrovert. Hmm. I know many introverts who are very talented speakers. In fact, Dr. Peterson, he is an introvert. Hmm. But he gets on stage, he doesn't have any notes whatsoever, 
and he'll speak for hours and very talentedly too. He has audiences in the thousands and people listen to him and you'd think, oh, he must be an extrovert bouncing off the walls. But that's really not what he's like. Hmm. So it's good to avoid these kind of overly simplistic stereotypes and factor analysis, since I brought it up, just to go over it briefly again, it's a statistical concept. So just like in the last interview I mentioned, imagine you have this bowl of flour. Mm -hmm. So you reach over, you grab a jar, you take that jar, and you fill it up with water. So you take that bowl of flour and you pour the water into the bowl. So what happens to the flour? Well, it starts to clump up and take shapes. Mm -hmm. That's what factor analysis is. So some of these personality traits are more central than others, and so they will overlap or they'll cluster, they'll clump together. There was a psychologist, Raymond Cattell. He said that when you apply factor analysis to these traits, this procedure will identify the clusters of correlation between the items that have underlying factors. And so then those factors will be the different personality dimensions. So you've given us, I would say, some good theoretical background for understanding where we need to go. Anything else you feel is important before we actually launch into talking about the Briggs-Myers assessment? Sure. Actually, I'd like to give a little bit of insight as to why it's called Myers-Briggs. And I want to share a very interesting quote from one of the founders. Uh, Isabel Myers and her mother, Catherine Briggs, hence Myers-Briggs, during the Second World War, they tried to take Jung's ideas and make them more accessible to the general public. In fact, Isabel Myers-Briggs, she said, it is up to each person to recognize his or her preferences. She felt that it was vital that Jung's work, which was very scholarly and analytical and oftentimes very technical in the way he enunciated it, she felt that it was vital that it be brought down to the layperson's level that way each person can have access to these ideas and use them almost like tools within a toolbox as they continue to relate not only to themselves within themselves but with other people. This is, I think, some very, very interesting background. And whether we've got some psychologists who can keep Myers before Briggs or whether you've got radio hosts who will change it to the Briggs-Myers inventory – we're going to learn some fascinating things that will help every one of you as far as you look at your own personality and at the personality of other people around you. The show is one that you don't want to miss. Chris Cernike is staying by. I am as well. You do the same. We'll be back right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. For 13 and one half years, I was the victim of severe child abuse. I was being beaten, cursed, and deprived of any kind of love and care. It was a big secret. Children are born to be loved, not to be abused. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. 
That's overcomingabuse.org. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. I'm here to warn you about telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Some of these scammers may say threatening things like you will be arrested if you don't make payments or provide personal information. Do not fall for these tricks. These calls are not from us. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you for information or money. If you receive a call like this, hang up. Never give the caller your personal information, like your Social Security number or bank account, or send money in any form, cash, gift cards, wire transfers, or prepaid debit cards. Report the call to our law enforcement arm, the Office of the Inspector General, at oig.ssa.gov. Share this information with your friends and family. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Back with Dr. David DeRose and with Chris Cernike. Chris is someone who's put his life, really, into focusing on things of mental health significance. Chris, uh, we didn't really talk much about your background since I figured many of my listeners were already familiar with you. But for the benefit of those who are getting acquainted with you for the first time, just tell us a little bit about yourself before we launch back into our dialogue. Sure, and once again, it's an absolute pleasure and honor to be here. I am a psychotherapist. I studied psychology and forensic science at Ashworth College. I studied integrative mental health at Texas State University, and I am a crisis counselor at Crisis Text Line. And Chris, one of the other things I appreciate about you is you actually are someone who's very comfortable communicating, making things easy. You're the host of a couple of podcasts. For those who don't know you, just briefly tell us uh, what you do in the podcasting world. Sure. We have two podcasts. One is called Current Topics in Science. We'll interview scientists from various backgrounds. The other is called Pilot's Interview, where we'll interview people who are scholars, historians, or theologians. And it's a fascinating cohort of different people that come together. And you can find these two podcasts on any of the major podcast platforms. So iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcast, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. Great, great. So Chris, let's come back to the topic at hand. We've been speaking about personality. And I know there's always naysayers. And they say things like, oh, well, no one really cares about this stuff anyway. It's all just a bunch of stuff to give people jobs in the mental health field. But 
you yourself, in some interesting contexts, have seen how compelling this topic is. I think you have a story that we were talking about off-air that might be applicable at this point. Oh, yeah. It's actually a pretty funny story. You see, as you mentioned, I do love getting to speak to people. I am an extrovert. Okay. I went to my favorite store, Target. I saw a woman there. She was stocking the shelves, and I struck up a conversation with her. And we started talking about personality psychology. She mentioned that she had already taken the Myers-Briggs test, which we're going to learn more about. Now, there was a gentleman who was listening to our conversation. He came up and said, man, this sounds like a deep conversation. How many personalities did you say that there were? I told him that there are 16 personalities using the MBTI scale. He said, yeah, 16 personalities, and my wife is every single one of them. Okay. So maybe he needed some personality training and some insight uh, that would help him deal with his wife. What do you think about that? Is that a safe conclusion to come to? I think what's interesting is that people will often ask, like, can I use this to determine my romantic compatibility with someone? Interesting. Now, I had, I won't mention this uh, individual's name, but it was actually somebody I interviewed. And what was interesting is that they took the personality test, uh, MBTI or 16 personalities, after we got done talking. Mm -hmm. Then they had their wife take it, and then they had their mother take it because their mom was living with them at that time. Hmm. Now, what he found out was that his wife and his mother have the same personality. So he called me up and he asked me, oh, no, I married my mother. Is this normal? Have I done something wrong? Does this normally happen? And, you know, I told him, you know, rest assured, uh, different personality types, when we focus on maturing and we exercise the strengths that we were naturally given, all of us can get along. This is very interesting. So you're saying... This fellow, the personality of his mother was very similar to the personality that his wife had. He ended up marrying someone who had a very similar personality. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, and uh, he didn't know what to do with that fact. He was shocked, and so he came to me and said, you know, uh, do men normally marry women with personalities similar to their mothers? Am I abnormal? Is there something wrong with me? And I told him, you know, don't worry about it. Human beings do like familiarity. And so, yeah, perhaps if your wife does remind you very much of your mother and you are very fond of your mother, I mean, you'll naturally gravitate towards what you like and what you're familiar with. So there's nothing abnormal about that. Fair enough. So uh, are we going to actually get a chance to take a modified version of this test? Yeah, I'm sure the listeners have been anxious to finally get to take this because we've mentioned it a few different times. We're going to take what's called the truncated 16 personalities test, uh, a full test. And it's going to be much more accurate if you take the full one because it's factor analysis. You give It's almost like uh, with any good scientific experiment – one of the things you can always do is increase the sample size. You know, so sometimes, you know, at the end of your report, you know, for the next replication, you might want to increase the sample size. It's the same mm -hmm. thing with this. So after you're done taking the truncated version, which we'll do now, if you want to take the full one, you can go to 16personalities.com. Just simply 16, the number 16, personalities.com? 16personalities.com. I am going to jot that down because I know 
that it's likely that I'm going to hear from someone who's going to ask about it. So 16 personalities.com. And if the doctor can read his own writing, we're in good shape. If not, you'll get a call from me or a text or something, okay? 16personalities.com. And is there a charge to take the test? It's actually totally free. But really, if you do want a premium report that goes in-depth into, say, things like romantic compatibility, workplace uh, functionality, uh, even parental strategies, hmm. you will have to pay for those premium subscriptions. But the actual test and the basic report is entirely free. Wow. Thank you for that. So all of you have gotten a, a beautiful reference to learn more about your personality, 16personalities.com. I can read my own writing, correct? Oh, yeah. Okay. We got a truncated version of it. So we're ready to launch into that right now, Casey? I mean, uh, Chris? Oh, yeah. Without further – and by the way, for the uh, listeners, Casey is my younger brother. He's my best friend. Now, an interesting story here. We have personality types that are, quote, unquote, incompatible you know, or what people mm. might think are, quote, unquote, incompatible because we're so very different from each other. But in reality, like I said earlier, there's no sense in becoming a 16 personalities bigot where you exclude people or judge people based off of their personalities. The way I look at it, the way Carl Jung looked at it, is you learn about your personality. That way you can grow as a person and help understand other people. It's not for the exclusion of others. But without further ado, are we ready to take the uh, truncated personality six test? I think we are. And I appreciate you bailing me out. People are wondering, wondering perhaps why the, the host is calling you Casey from time to time. But just to give Casey credit where credit is due, Casey is the tech member of the team on the Cernicky side, and he's been helping me out. So I've been dealing a lot with Casey over the last few days because we've had some unique challenges with our system. I feel he's uh, really been a great help. So just my, my hat's off to your brother. I wasn't planning to mention him on the show. I probably should have been. So we're, I'm glad that I uh, misspoke there a minute ago. So Chris, please launch into this truncated version of the Myers-Briggs personality test. Sure, and with actually after we're done with the test, once we get into explaining it, I can actually reveal what Casey and I are because some people ah. think it's incompatible, but you'll see. We work quite fine. Good, good. So without further ado, here is the truncated 16 personalities exam. This is question one. So this is question one. There's option E or option I. When it is time to recharge your batteries, do you prefer to be alone or with people? So we have option E or option I. And which is which? Do you tell us? So option E would be with people. Uh -huh. Option uh -huh. I would be alone. Okay, that's what I sized up. I just wanted to make sure. So recharging our batteries, either E with people or I alone. Exactly, and that was the okay. first question. So I'm ready. So question two. If you're going to study a certain subject, would you be more interested in knowing the facts or the relationship between the ideas and how they can be used in the future? So option S is knowing 
the facts. And then we have option N. That's the relationship between the ideas and how they're used. So to reiterate, if you're going to study a subject, would you be interested in knowing the facts, option S, or would you be interested in the relationship between the ideas and how they're used, option N? Now, somebody might say, well, I'm kind of drawn towards both. We might want to pick the one that you most often go with. So that's the same with all of these different answers. You might feel a little torn between both, but that's because the dichotomy level might be low in you. So just pick the one that you most often gravitate towards. So, so Chris, just for the benefit of everyone and for the benefit of myself, because I'm filling this quiz out myself as well. So when we talk about relations between ideas and the facts... Uh, it's still a little muddy. I want to get a little bit more into this in our next segment, but our time right now is rapidly slipping away. So we're going to be right back. We're going to finish this quiz, and we're going to talk together about things that can make a difference for you. Stay tuned. More right after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. The most negative thinking in my childhood was the things said to me. I felt like I was a bag of garbage waiting to go to the dump. Please, moms and dads, put a watch on your mouth as you relate to your children. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Papa, why can't we telegraph while riding a horse? Son, there ain't no one to blame but Jeffro. He was riding old Betsy the Stallion, tip-tapping away at his telegraph, when blam, ran right into the side of the saloon. Well, if Jeffro can't do it, neither should you. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Heard-Garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Every year, hundreds of teens drown. If your teen hasn't learned to swim yet, it's never too late. Even if your teen is a strong swimmer, make sure to supervise kids of any age. No one should swim alone. Teach them to enter the water feet first, wear life jackets on a boat, and never use alcohol or drugs on the water. Drowning is preventable. For more, visit HealthyChildren.org. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for youth. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals into your body. And nicotine, which can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 
That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with the second half of today's edition of the broadcast. Dr. David DeRose with psychotherapist Chris Cernike. He's trying to help you have better insights into your own personality as well as the personality of those that you rub shoulders with. Chris, you've been walking us through a quiz, and that first quiz question had to do with what energizes us. Is it other people? That would be E. Or do we want to be alone when we need to be refreshed, rejuvenated, energized? Have I got the terminology right? And that was I. The second question, now this one I'm still struggling with a little bit, and maybe my listeners are thinking, well, wow, what is so difficult about this? But you asked us to choose between an S, which was a focus on the facts, and an N, which you said was more on relationships and how things relate to future events. Did I understand what you were describing? Mm-hmm. The S would be the knowing of the facts, and the mm-hmm. N is the relationship between the ideas and how those ideas can be used in the future. So it makes okay. sense sometimes when you hear this kind of new terminology to feel as though I don't really quite understand what is being asked or said here. Uh-huh. Now, when you're taking the truncated version of this test, you have to keep in mind that when you're taking the full version – you're going to get the opportunity to answer multiple questions measuring the same dichotomy. Now, with the truncated version, as I mentioned, you're only getting the one question trying to measure the dichotomies E, I, uh, S, N, F, T, or J, P. Mm-hmm. But with the larger test, you'll have multiple questions. That way, if you didn't understand a question, like on the 16 personalities test, it'll give you the option to have highly agree, moderately agree, agree, neutral, I don't understand, or skip the question. And then it'll have disagree, highly agree, absolutely, totally disagree. So it gives you a broader spectrum. So for your listeners who aren't really satisfied with the result or who might get a different result when they take the full version, keep in mind that when you do take the full version, because it's increased the sample size of the questions, it has a more accurate factor analysis. Good, good. Well, that does help. Okay, so you've got me to to choose between S and N. I've made my decision there, so I'm ready for at least a couple more questions. Mo, we have two more. This is the third one. Is it important, this is the third question, is it more important for you to be thought of as a fair, caring, sensitive person or be thought of as a reasonable, logical, and objective person? So question three again was, is it more important for you to be thought of as fair, caring, or sensitive? That's option F. So option F is fair, caring, or sensitive. Then we have option T, reasonable, logical, and objective. Is it more important for you to be option F, fair, caring, sensitive, or T, reasonable, logical, objective? Okay. That was straightforward enough. So I think we're ready to move on to to number four. So actually, this is the final question. Okay. Question four is, if we were going to do a project together, 
Mm-hmm. Would you prefer that the project was outlined, that it was planned, that it was orderly, or would you prefer for it to be more flexible, more spontaneous? So we have option J. So that's – if you're picking option J, that means you want the project to be more outlined, more planned, and more orderly. But if you're picturing, uh, picking option P, then you want it to be more flexible, more spontaneous. Okay. Other than number two, those dichotomies seem to be pretty clear. So number four is whether I want something really precise, outline specific, and then the P would be more flexible, giving a little bit more leeway for maybe individuality if I'm interpreting it correctly. Fair enough? Fair enough. Okay, so I've got the four questions. I have answered them all. And hopefully all of you listening to the show have done the same thing. Because, Chris, I'm expecting you to now walk us through what we just answered. Mm-hmm. And so you should have gotten a four-letter combination, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. along the lines of E, N, F, or J, like mine. I am an ENFJ. That's otherwise known as the protagonist. My brother got ISTJ when he took this test. Those are the logisticians. Hmm. Now, Certain personality types are rare or not as common as the other. The ENFJ is actually one of the rarest. Hmm. I believe only 2% of adult males are ENFJs. Wow. So we were fortunate to get you on the show today, weren't we? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going extinct. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Are you going to tell us a little bit more about these different, different personalities that are determined by these four questions? So now that you've got your result, it's this strange letter combination. Yeah, I got mine. Uh, What exactly is it? I'm curious about what yours is, Dr. DeRose, but what you'll see is that you can put your personality into one of four categories. So the four categories are analysts, diplomats, sentinels, or explorers. So it's 16 personalities. Uh So the test has four personality types. That are arranged into four different uh, four different personalities. So that's four times four, hence sixteen personalities. Uh-huh. So we have the diplomats, the analysts, the sentinels, and the explorers. So let's look at one of the categories. We have the four analysts, and I'm curious what category you'd end up fitting in, Doctor DeRose. Actually, let me know when. Let me know when you read your category. When I read your number, I want to know when uh, you come up. Okay. So we have the four analysts. That's the I N T. J, the I-N-T-P, the E-N-T-J, or the E-N-T-P. So these personality types are typically described as rational, intellectual, strong-willed, and strategic. Now, those are the strengths, and like I said earlier, there's strengths and weaknesses to all of them. So if an analyst, say, becomes unbalanced... Mm-hmm. They'll experience difficulties in their romantic and their social pursuits because they end up becoming so strong-willed and independent that they'll push other people away. And so Mm. that's why there's an important balance in maintaining your strengths and your weaknesses. That's really what this is for. It's to learn this, not to become obsessed with your type or to exclude others because their type doesn't match yours, but to learn where your strengths and weaknesses lie that way you can move forward. Fair enough. So you've come close to my letter combination, but we haven't gotten there yet. Okay, so we're going to look at the next category of personality. We have the I, 
These are the diplomats. We have the INFJ. We have the INFP. The ENFJ, which is mine, and the ENFP. I'm with you. I'm in the diplomat category. Oh, you are in the diplomat category. So INFJ is typically the advocate, ENFJ the protagonist, INFP the mediator, and then ENFP the campaigner. People who are diplomats are often described as being empathetic, cooperative, very harmonizing, even influential. Some say they might make great counselors. Hmm. However, if diplomats will let their emotions get the better of their rationality, they might have difficulty making decisions, okay. uh, such as humanitarian ones. So we always want to strive for balance, and that will bring us to another category of personality. That's the four sentinel personality types, the ISTJ, which is what my brother is, hmm. the ISFJ, the ESTJ, and the ESFJ. Now, people in the sentinel category usually focus on practicality, order, security, and they're more often than not willing to work within hierarchies and climb up the ranks. Now, however, once again, as we said before, there are strengths and weaknesses to each type. So uh -huh. sentinels, if they allow their weaknesses to go unchecked, they might come off as being stubborn individuals who are insecure and people might be frustrated to work with them because it might seem like they're inflexible and won't consider other people's viewpoints. And so we've now reached our final category of personality. These are the explorer personality types, the ISTP, the ISFP, the ESTP, and the ESFP. They're typically looked at as spontaneous and energetic, and these people, they're quick-thinking, sharp-witted, and they can mm -hmm. be pretty convincing. Now, sometimes they can convince people or even convince their own consciences to take unnecessary risks, engage in hedonistic pleasure, uh -huh. and they might end up feeling purposeless or aimless because there's a lot of uncertainty in their personality. So all in all, when we looked at the analysts, the diplomats, the sentinels, and the explorers, what we found is that the key here is balance. I appreciate you walking us through this, and I know for some folks it may seem, Chris, like this was drinking out of the proverbial fire hose or fire hydrant, but this has really given us a, a lot of perspective on why there's differences, why you know, some might be more logical in their thinking, more uh, wanting structure, others may want more involvement in, in the process. Uh, some may thrive in those environments where there are other people around. Others may seem to be recharged in those uh, in those settings where they're alone. So I think this is very helpful stuff. But I know a lot of the folks who are listening today, they may say, well, this is great. I'm an analyst and uh, my best friend's a sentinel. I've also heard you saying you don't want us to get overly concerned like, oh, no, I just found out that my business partner is such and such. How could we ever work together? Because you illustrated it with you and your brother. Absolutely. There's no sense in becoming uh, prejudiced or bigoted over different personality types. I think as I mentioned earlier in the interview, the key here is to maximize your strength, especially the strengths you have in common. See, my brother's ISTJ. I'm ENFJ. Both of us have that J in common. 
that judging or that orderly or that structured element to our personalities. And we've many times used that together. That way we can find that common ground, harmonize and continue to push forward with each other. These are powerful insights, Chris. And I know a lot of folks, they maybe went through this. They said, I'm not really sure. I think I'm more of a sentinel than an explorer. You mentioned that there's a way to get more precise information about this free of charge. Give us that website again where someone could go and take the full Myers-Briggs inventory. So if you're interested in checking out the full 16 personalities test, you can check out 16, that's one, six, so 16personalities.com. Okay. Thank you so much. And as we're winding up this segment, I know because of you know various scheduling issues, it looks like you may not be able to be with me. My final segment, we do have something special for our listeners lined up then, but others will want to connect with you, Chris, and really take in some of your other great insights, your podcasts. Again, could you tell us the name of the podcast that you host? Sure. The two podcasts are Current Topics in Science and Pilot's Interview. Chris Cernicky, he's been my guest. He's been walking us through personality types. Hopefully you've gained some insights that will make a difference for you, not only personally, but as you deal with other people. Like I promised, we've got another final segment coming up in today's show. You don't want to miss it. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We will be back with more right after this. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. If child abuse victims don't get counseling or help, they so often become abusers themselves. The victim doesn't make the decisions. They just take the orders. I got help. And so can you. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. If you own firearms, it's your responsibility to make sure they're always stored safely. Hiding them in a closet or drawer is not enough. Kids know where they are. Research shows the risk of injury and death is lower if guns are stored unloaded and locked up with the ammunition locked in a separate place. This is important when children are young as well as when they grow into teenagers. For more, talk with your pediatrician or visit HealthyChildren.org. So I wanted to talk with you and your mom today, Lily, because some people at school have noticed changes going on with you, and we're concerned. Like what? Who? Some of your friends, teachers. Sounds like you've lost interest in a lot of things lately. You're hanging with new friends? So? So, individually, maybe those things are no big deal. But taken together, and then the incident the other day, you were with Derek when he was caught selling marijuana. Yeah, he was selling it. Honey, we know. But we care about you and, and want to know what's going on. That's right. We just want to understand better and see how we might help. And if weed is a part of it, we just want to make sure you understand the negative consequences for someone your age. The physical and mental health effects, the poor decision-making, and the confusing legal aspects these days. So what do you say? Can we talk? 
For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to today's edition of the broadcast. I am Dr. David DeRose. We've got another great guest lined up for us as we're continuing to explore things of relevance to Indian country and beyond. My guest for this segment is Destiny DeWalt. Destiny, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. Destiny, you and I had the privilege of meeting at a virtual meeting. It was the first of its kind. The American Public Health Association normally meets in person. Public health professionals from all over the world gather there. There were some 9,000 of us this year gathering in the virtual environment on Zoom and interacting. And I was really excited to meet you because you're doing, I just think, some tremendous work. Destiny, tell us a bit about why you were at APHA and what you're doing. So my name is Destiny DeWalt, as you said, and I am a community health worker at Esperanza Community Housing. And Esperanza is an organization that has been providing housing and community health services for the low-income populations of South LA. Um, It started off with focusing its intentions and its work around the Figueroa Corridor, which is an area that is close to USC, which is a prominent university in Los Angeles. And then it began to expand its reach into other communities. The idea is to not only keep people housed, no matter what their income is, but to help them have access to services and to make sure that that housing is healthy. We find a lot of our clients live in substandard conditions. They're dealing with tenant issues. They're dealing with mold and different things that cause health complications for the residents. And um, we are employed to assess those situations and to help them improve their health and their living conditions. This is such an exciting organization. And I know folks throughout Indian country, like folks in any demographic group in the United States, I mean, they represent a variety of standards of living, variety of economic uh, situations. So there's folks that are tuning in today that are dealing with housing insecurity. There's other folks that tune in that are very well off. I mean, this is such a huge issue, though, in so many areas, whether we talk about a reservation setting, whether we talk about an urban setting that you're representing. So tell us a little bit about why there is a connection between a community health worker like yourself and leading public health professionals from all over the world. What did you bring to the table at APHA? I'm just going to be honest with my listeners. I was very excited with what you shared, and I think my listeners are going to be as well. Esperanza has different departments. There is um, one that specifically deals with children with special needs, one that deals specifically with housing conditions and lead exposure. And I work at the Healthy Breathing Program, which specifically deals with people who have asthma. So we partner with the Healthy Homes Department because a lot of times our work overlaps. But sometimes if the person is just having asthma symptoms, that client will be referred to us. And we recognize that there are more than environmental triggers that people with asthma face. There are psychosocial triggers. And I think Mm. those triggers are not necessarily taken into account. And when you're a person of color operating in a land that has been colonized, 
you find yourself coming across a lot of these triggers. And because you're used to operating under high stress environments, you're used to handling so much, you're not recognizing how much that is affecting your health. This is such an important topic. And I really am excited about it because one of the big issues that we deal with across the age spectrum are breathing difficulties, whether we talk about asthma that really cuts across the age demographics or whether we talk about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, that we primarily see in, in, in older individuals in the population. These are just huge concerns. And you really took a different look at the topic of asthma than we, than we usually hear. We often don't look at the human element. We often don't look at the, the social factors. We don't often look at how justice-related issues affect this whole equation. And as you've been dealing with populations that have dealt with subjugation, inequities, injustice, how did that all play into the dialogue that you shared at APHA? Great question. Um, the topic that my particular presentation was under was violence and health. And violence is something that many of our communities are facing, whether it's a violence within the community or violence that is put onto the community. When you're facing different situations from particular law enforcement, or even when you are not getting the quality care that you need from your physician because the physician is not from that community. So they don't necessarily feel connected to that community. And you can feel that disconnect. And that particular disconnect causes triggering effects within our clients. They feel uneasy when they're going to the doctor. They don't want to go to the doctor because it is an uncomfortable feeling. They can feel that disconnect from the physicians that they're visiting. And so these different elements play a bigger part in the health of the community. These underlining things, these maybe perceived or um notions, these things that are happening that are not really spoken, but that are felt, you begin to have a physical reaction to those things. And a lot of times, especially if you have asthma, they can be um, something triggering and you begin to experience chest tightness, shortness of breath, wheezing, just because of an emotional response to something that made you feel uncomfortable. This is, I think, such an important topic because in Indian country, I mean, it's like many places where we're dealing with populations where their own members of the community are not actually in the roles of being the caregivers. And I know there's been a, a strong push in Indian country to help indigenous people uh, pursue careers and, for example, the, the medical lines. And I know a number of great uh, providers who are Native and have gone back to their own communities to deliver those services. But far too often we're hearing stories, just like you're describing in your environment, where the individuals rendering the care are not part of the community. You may say, oh, well, this is a quality provider. This person has, you know, good training. This person is compassionate, however, whatever metrics you want to use. But if they're not identifying with the people they're caring for, what I hear you saying, Destiny, is the individuals are really, in a sense, being shortchanged as far as the kind of optimal care they could be receiving. Am I hearing that right? In many cases, yes. I think that cultural connection and that level of cultural competency and cultural humility, you know, being okay with not knowing, not knowing a, a, a 
everything about a culture. I think if you're not from their culture, there's really no way that you can know everything. So being able to just be humble and allow the person to express themselves without judgment, without ridicule, and also understanding that there is some merit to why they approach health a certain way. And getting to understand that and being able to have these meaningful conversations and interactions with the clients will improve their quality of health. So one of the powerful messages that, that jumps out at me, Destiny, from your work and the work of Esperanza is to come close to people. But the bigger issue, too, I think, is one about organizational things. You're part of an organization that's saying, we want to make a difference in our community. Speak to folks that might be in tribal leadership, folks that might be organizing medical services. What are you learning in your context there in urban Los Angeles that might be translatable to other urban environments or maybe even environments that are not urban? Um, One beautiful thing among many um, that Esperanza does is they annually train community health workers. It's a six-month bilingual program where they bring in people from the community to train them on different topics that are affecting the demographic that they live around and that they will serve. And I think it's really important to have this open door of community members to get more educated about the things that are affecting their community and to equip them with tools to take them back to their neighbors, to their friends, to their families, to sometimes those hard to reach populations within populations and give them the education and the support and the empowerment that they need. These people are smart. They have a lot of knowledge and resources and the ability to survive some really complex situations. And sometimes they just need the support and the resources and the empowerment and the tools and the direction and treat it like equals. You're speaking about the level of insight, intelligence that community health workers have. You know, a lot of folks, I'll just be, be honest, People, the more education they get, sometimes think that they've really got it all together. They've got their doctorate or whatever. But um, like you're saying, the practical wisdom that many people have, they may not have years of training. And I think this is what we find in indigenous communities and in underserved areas is a lot of folks, they may not have had an opportunity to get a lot of education, but they've taken the opportunities they have and they're using those practical skills in powerful ways. I know there's a lot of folks, they've been excited about the little they've been exposed to about Esperanza. How could someone get more information about your program or perhaps even connect with you? They can visit the website, which is esperanzacommunityhousing.org. Or they could visit me or email me at destiny, D-E-S-T-I-N-E-E, at esperanzacommunityhousing.org. Okay, let me see if I got this right. So it's simply Destiny, your name, D-E-S-T-I-N-E-E, at EsperanzaCommunityHousing.org. Yes. Okay, great. Destiny, we do have to step away. It's been great having you. Thanks so much for sharing your expertise. Thank you for having me, and I hope. I hope you've enjoyed that segment with Destiny, and I hope you've enjoyed today's edition of the program. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.